episode number 37, EO Sharp. And welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I am your host, Michael Cruz. And now an interview with designer E.O. Sharp that was conducted at the Shaw Festival in May of this year. Uh, E.O. was born and raised in Toronto, but has called Montreal her home for most of her career. She gives us a great perspective on both the English and Quebec theatre and her time working on experimental drama there. Now, I can't stress enough following along with the show notes. They help give context as the names fly by, and there are a lot of ones, especially ones I had not heard of because of the nature of EO's work. And uh, at the show notes, there are also links to other giants in Canadian theater. So make sure to enrich your experience and follow along. I have also added some for portfolio shots of EO's work at thetitleblock.com, so, so check that out. And if you're able, go now to patreon.com slash thetitleblockpodcast to support the show with just a few bucks an episode. And thank you to those of you who are already donating. Now, if you use this show to teach your students about the history of theater design, let me know about it. I really want to know how people are using the podcast. So email me at thetitleblock at gmail.com or drop us a message at our Facebook page or Twitter at the title block CA. And now my conversation with designer EO Sharp. EO Sharp has been a theater designer for 30 years, born in Toronto, but living and working in Montreal for her entire career. EO joins me in the design office at the Shaw Festival where she's designing the set for Alice in Wonderland. EO, welcome to the title block. Thank you. It's great to have you here. I'm sorry we missed you last year. Yeah. You're designing Pygmalion. Maybe we can talk about that for a little bit. Um, but tell me about your life. You had a very interesting childhood, uh, daughter of two artists, correct? That's right. Tell me about that and how it led to your choices to go into theater. Um, well, I guess both my parents were visual artists, so I kind of grew up in a world of, of artists and we were always going to galleries and looking at shows. And I think ideally my parents would have liked it if I became a visual artist, but I think I was kind of daunted by it. And, um, yeah. And in my early childhood, I also became very good friends with Mallory Gilbert, which led to me going to Tarragon and I would volunteer and go to the pay what you can. And I basically saw every show in the seventies and I kind of got the theater bug at that point. So I guess I kind of made the leap from, from one to the other. But I definitely spent my childhood, yeah, completely seeped in in art history. We, we saw an insane amount of shows and things when I was a kid. I can imagine. And you were at the uh, like the Terrigal in the nineteen seventies, which is an incredible place. Yeah, it was really... very amazing. Yeah. And I, I was well, I probably started going to see shows when I was eleven or twelve. And I actually remember going to see Hosanna with Richard Manette, yeah. and I was underage because that had been closed down by the censors. Yes. And Mallory snuck us in, and you know, a number of the shows were really kind of like, oh my god, seeing them like Hosanna, just the subject matter. Most of the Tremblay place, and the other one that made a big impression on me was Forever Yours, Mary Lou. Mm-hmm. You know, like the end of it, it was a very like, oh, it was a very big uh, penny dropped kind of. Yeah, there were really sort of shifts in in my growing up and, and making it from a child to an adult. Incredible. And of course, Hosanna uh, is about there's a 
drag queen or a or a trans yeah it's a transvestite person, transvestite. yeah yeah so richard monette is playing and it ends with the two main it was a. Uh, uh, Richard Donat and Richard Manette were in the production. And it ends with full fa- frontal male nudity, which, you know, I mean, I was probably 11 or 12 when I saw it. That's right. That, that must not, not have phased you. You were doing life drawing classes yeah. at the time, right? Yeah. I'm yeah. saying when my parents, they sent me to uh, to classes, um, I would go to the other school, uh, school of art, the three schools, which was just behind the poor Alex. It was that whole thing. And so it was all just different visual artists would offer classes. And my parents constantly sent me to classes as a little kid. So I started doing figure drawing. Um, my brother and I were like nine or 10. And I was saying it was funny because there'd be uh, nude nude models. And you could definitely see that some people in the class were a little taken aback that we were doing the class. But I did a lot of different classes there. And I also took, I remember doing anatomy classes. And I remember doing a class on costumes with Marie Day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you went to, so you didn't go into theater right away. You went to, you, once you got, where, where did you go to high school in Toronto first of all? Oh, I went, oh, I had a very checkered career. Um, <laughs> it's okay. I grew up in very downtown Toronto. So I went to Huron Street School, Jesse Ketchum, mm-hmm. then to Jarvis. Mm-hmm. And I did not like Jarvis. And so I went to um, Seed, which was an alternative school yeah. in the 70s. And in fact, Sean Kerwin also went there, but she went before I, I did. Yeah, I was going to say that's where I heard about it before from Sean Kerwin because she had a really she yeah. had an incredible time at Seed. That oh, yeah. Really I had an amazing 70s. time yeah. at Seed, too. And so uh, at Seed, I finished my... I did. 11, 12, and 13 at Seed. And and it was actually a very great thing because, like, the school, there was nothing that existed. You had to set everything up. So if you wanted to do a class, you set up your class, and you went and you found somebody who could teach it, and you put up a list. And had, and it's kind of interesting because I realized it made me very self-reliant, and it made me very self-disciplined. And it's interesting because at the time when I went, my my teachers at Jarvis were just appalled because I was a good a good student, and they were like, "Oh, that's it. You'll you'll never, you know, like I've become a, dro- a dropout at that point." And what's really interesting is that almost everybody I went to school with there is a university professor now. And really, you think about it, that's basically what they were doing was they were setting up courses, yeah, right. you know. Yeah, not only the information, but you get the uh, you get the the admin side too. Yeah, right? and I actually feel like the flunky being the set designer right. when. <laughs> That's right. That's you know, right. when one friend's a classics professor and the other one's a, oh, yeah. a biochemistry professor. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm doing my my uh, physiology right now, and I, you get a, you get a whole new perspective on on you venerate. You know, oh my God, you must be so smart. Uh, they make the same mistakes everyone else does. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really humanizes them. Um, well, that's terrific. Now, uh, you and you ended up going to U of T for art history. Right? That's right, and I didn't. I, I loved costumes. I had started collecting. I actually started collecting uh, vintage clothing when I was about 13 or 14. And, um, yeah, so I was super interested in, in textiles. Um, when I started going to U of T, my actual ultimate goal was to go to the Courtauld Institute in London and become a costume historian. But I realized when I was doing it that it was just too dry and academic, and I, I loved doing it. I did it very well. And I loved all the knowledge, but I realized that I really wanted to make something. And I guess I'd spent my whole childhood drawing and making things all the time. And I always made all my clothes. And so I realized that I just wanted to make something. So that's why I decided that either I do uh, theater, like theater or film, just film, um, or go into uh, fashion design. 
Yeah. Uh, and so what led you to National Theatre School? How did you make that choice? Oh, my gosh. I don't even remember. Oh, because I guess at the time, there weren't that many places where you could study mm-hmm. strictly design, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I guess I could have gone to Ryerson, but Ryerson, it was a mixed program mm-hmm. at that point. point. Same with York. Mm-hmm. And um, my mother is Quebecois, so I speak French. So, yeah, I decided to, to go to the National Theatre School. Um yeah, I, I can't really... I guess at the time, probably, that's what everybody spoke of. So I did the interview. When I did the application, I really didn't know that much about it. And one of the things they asked for... We had to design a play to get in. They asked for technical drawings, a floor plan. I had no idea how to do a floor plan. And I was at I was at U of T, and it was during my exam period, so I was completely going crazy. So I got a book out of the library on how to do a floor plan. And I had, I did it so meticulously with rapidographs, with all these different, well, so I did it totally in ink. And it was only when I got to theater school, I realized it was actually supposed to be done with pencil. (laughs) That's very funny. I have have a friend of mine, uh, Phil Sagan, he used to be a, a, he was an assistant here in the late uh, 90s. And uh, he drafted in, in, in ink. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot. He felt it was like a, it's like a high wire act. Mm-hmm. Like you can't make a mistake and it's going to be perfect. And I always thought he was crazy. Like I, I would never tell, like it's way too risky. Plus it's all going to change anyway. So why would you ever do anything in ink? But he was very proud of it. He was in a very, he was very, very talented. Ah, okay. He was a very good, very yeah, good draftsman. Yeah. Um, and, uh, now when, who was, who was running the school at that time? At that, that time it was Francois Barbeau. And that was 85? 80, I got it. My first year was 85. Yeah. Yeah. And how was the program structured? Uh, um, the program, we basically kind of did two-week segments, and they would have different professionals from all across the country come. And one of the big reasons why I did choose the school was because it was strictly professionals that were doing the programs and because there was a very heavy, heavy component to it that was very practical. In your final year, you design things the whole time. But what was interesting about NTS at that period was that because they hired different professionals for two weeks, from year to year, the program varied incredibly, and what skill set you came out with was very different from year to year, mm-hmm. which is actually kind of odd, mm-hmm. but that's the way it was at the time. And and I definitely met amazing people, and you know, it's what gave me a foot in the professional world as well when I finished. But yeah, and Francois Barbeau was very amazing. He was incredibly. Um, he, he was a very, very hard man. He was very, very critical. And it, I learned so much from him. It was incredible. He used to do these, they called them costume parades, but really there was only the costume, the Sano department that was there. There was no director. And each, the, every single costume would come on stage and that Francois Barbeau would sit in the theater with the designer, the student designer next to him, and he'd explain exactly what worked and what did not work about each costume and what should be done to fix it. And he was brutal. You know, he was very brutal about about things. You know, the, design, the student usually was in tears by the end of the sure. evening, but I learned so much during those th- those periods. Yeah. It's like the original Project Runway. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great, which I've only just become a fan of in the last like <laughs> yeah. month and a half. I have, yeah. I'm embarrassed to say. Um, now, you were telling me about the life drawing. So you did a lot of life drawing when you were a, when you were a kid. So this is something that came natural to you. Right? Yeah. Um, but it was a heavy component at Ryerson when I, that, that I went to school. Was not a component of the design course there. But you did a lot of life drawing. Um, 
at, uh, and, and yes, tell me about what happened when Michael Egan Oh, when Michael came, Egan came in, because I spent my, it was a four-year program when I was there. It's a three-year program now. So my first two years were with Barbeau as the head of the department. And then he left and Michael Egan took over. And uh, before him, we with Francois Barbeau, we had nine hours a week of costume drawing with a very wonderful teacher named Francois Vincent, who still teaches life drawing at, at the theater school. And is a totally amazing man. And he's a visual artist. And it's great because he brings another side as well. And that was very characteristic of Francois Barbeau's uh, reign there. It was very much connected to the arts world as a whole. When Michael Egan came in, it became very technically oriented. And overnight, we went from nine hours a week of life drawing to nine hours a week of technical drawing. And it was just, it was crazy. Like, we, I remember the first thing he gave us was a very traditional 19th century trompe l'oeil project. And we could each pick a period. And we were all like... Like to us, this was just terrible after after the artistic freedom of of Barbeau, yeah. but uh, it really was uh, amazing tr- tr- uh, to learn all that technical drawing. And I never would have done set design without it. You know, I went in with so much uh, capabilities and costumes, mm-hmm. and I really did not have any in in uh, sets. And I don't think I would have been able to design sets without without that. I think I would have, if I had just done the program with Barbo, I would be a costume designer and I would not be a set designer. And partly out of fear too, right? Like yeah. just not having the, the confidence to be able to do it. But after learning um, drawing from Michael Egan, yeah, you could hand in a technical drawing and people go, oh my God, yeah. did you draw this? <laughs> you know? yeah, he's notorious for being, oh. for being meticulous with he's, his drawings. He loves objects. it. Yeah. He loves it. Yeah. Uh, do you know if he's transferred? Uh, I, I have to. I have been trying to um, reach out to him to get him on the show, but because uh, he'd be great to talk to, to chat with. Oh, I'm, I'm totally still in touch with him, and I, he would love to talk. I'm See, sure. This is the thing. I he's such a email. yacker. Yeah, I know. It'd be great. Um, well, that's if you can. <laughs> you can nudge him. I think I sent him an email. I haven't heard back from. Him. Maybe it was the wrong email address. So you find yourself at National Theatre School. You complete the program in three years. So you get mm-hmm. out in 88-ish. Oh, it was yeah. four years. It was four there. years, right. So, so I f- completed it in 89. Okay. Uh, and you decided to stay in Montreal. That's when I... Well, you have to back up a bit. Okay. The foolish thing, but I thought I was smart, yes. but which is I really wanted kids. And I graduated. I was 30. Mm-hmm. So in my third year, I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. I had a my uh, oldest son, Sam, uh, in... I thought this was brilliantly timed. Born July 5th. Right. So I could go back to my fourth oh, year right. in September when he was eight weeks old. Yes. <laughs> so I did my fourth year of designing with a little tiny baby. And I was so cross-eyed. You can't even imagine it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's incredible. I can't, uh, sorry, I can't, uh, can't imagine going through the school or any kind of like intense trade, especially in fourth year, you're doing like all this Oh yeah, that's when work. I was actually yeah. doing the designing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, no, it was completely crazy. That's crazy. I was uh, so cross-eyed. Yeah, I can only imagine, but you got through it. I got through it, but then I had a little baby and I was exhausted, so I was like, I think I'll just stay put for a bit. And part of it also was that I grew up in Toronto. I knew Toronto. It's an expensive city. I was really worried that I would go back to Toronto and three years later I'd be a waitress or doing some Joe job to make ends meet, especially as I had a small kid. So I ended up, That's I started by, I got uh, sewing jobs. I actually went back to NTS. The year after I graduated, I worked as a first hand. Mm-hmm. So I was doing things like 
Um, and then I went on to Dawson College, the Sea Shepherd, where I was head of wardrobe there for probably three or four years. And, um, yeah, so I kept intending, like, I was like, oh, I'll cut my teeth, you know, bit of, then when I got design down, I'll, I'll move to, to Toronto. And it's just like one thing led to another and I'm still there. And you're still there. Yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, I had, I told you earlier that I have, I, I don't think I've interviewed anybody English or French from, uh, from Quebec yet. Uh, so it's great to have you on the show. And I, I really want to get people on the show who are, who are involved in the Quebecois theater, uh, because it's a black box to many people in English theater, especially okay. if you don't, if you've never been or worked in Montreal, even in English theater. Yeah. Um, but you work primarily in English theater in Montreal. I work primarily in English theater. It's interesting because they're definitely two separate worlds. I have, uh, worked on an, quite a few shows that have been in French theaters. Um, I've worked on a few shows that are that technically qualify as French. So they were because there's actually different unions. It was UDA as opposed to a packed show. Um, but I think like you could you can cross the line, but you have to make the effort to do it. And I never have. Like if I put all my, you know. If I really went out and knocked on doors, I'm sure I could make the cross and work in French theater. I just have never done it. But it's very interesting there. Like I think another reason why I stayed in Quebec is because culture is such an intrinsic part of the society there. And they have... Everybody believes in their movies, in their TV shows, in their artists, in their musicians, in a way that... The Toronto I grew up in, it was not true. Mm-hmm. You know, people would always be like, oh, who goes to see a Canadian movie? You know, like people were always like that. And I, I, I think that there was a part of being in Quebec that gave me a great deal of confidence as an artist mm-hmm. and who I was. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I had stayed in Toronto, if I would have been able to. And, you know, it's just my own lack of confidence. Mm-hmm. But I truly found it very uh invigorating and nourishing how much they believe and it was also a very exciting time at that point for theater because in the 80s and 90s you're talking about Gilles Mao, Carbon 14, uh, Robert Lepage very very interesting things were going on in theater so it was a very interesting and the festival um, it's now called Festival Transamérique it was called the FTA uh, Festival Théâtre des Amériques at the time it was also a super interesting festival and you know they'd bring Robert Wilson Ariane Mnuchin Peter Brooks. So there's really a lot of interesting things going on in theater. So I found that very exciting too. Interesting. Okay. Uh, now, what was your first, you, um, uh, you, as working as a, as a head of wardrobe at the CEGEP, what was your first breakout as a designer? What was the first, like, what made your connection? Oh, well, what I, because I, as I said, I, I guess I had, I definitely lacked confidence a lot as when I first got out of school, which makes it kind of funny that I didn't do an apprenticeship, but I really did not want to do an apprenticeship. I didn't want to go into conventional theater. So what I did was when I was working at the CGEP is I would literally read um, the uh, the voir, which is sort of the equivalent of, is it now in Toronto? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was the, and I would just see, you know, people would have ads saying, oh, well, we were, we're putting on a play and we want, we need an actor. So I'd phone them and say, oh, do you need a designer? Right. And they'd invariably go, oh, yes, yes. So I just did tons of, and I did a lot of shows like that. Mm-hmm. And so I would do all these little kind of sets. And I ended up hooking with up with two people. One, uh, Stacy Christodoulou, who has a theater company called The Other Theater. And I did a lot, a lot of shows with her and another very good friend, Joseph Kayata. And he and I actually, we started our own 
theater company called Sinfor Productions. And so I did a lot of shows with him as well. And so that's, and for a long time, like, yeah, I, I loved the shows that I was doing with them. And I would say mainly through the 90s, that's most of what I was doing was those shows. And what was the style of production? Was it uh, was it realistic or was it experimental theater? Or was it, it was uh, experimental theater. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them were collaborative creations. We did texts like Peter Hanke, um, Heiner Muller, um, things like that. Um, we, yeah, we did a lot of creative, creative. We also did stuff um, that wasn't necessarily in a theater milieu. For instance, I did uh, a piece with... Uh, Oboro Gallery in Montreal that was in an elevator. And so it was a piece of moving theater, if you will, and it was in a huge uh, freight elevator. So the audience just looked in the little uh, hole to watch what was going on. And um, yeah, so I did, we did all kinds of, we did crazy things like that. And we just sort of made things up. Like for that show, Stacy Christodoulou phoned me and said, oh, you know, there's, uh, this gallery, and they're doing a show with Tableau Vivant. Would you do one with me? And I said, Oh, yeah, but only if, because I knew what building it was, if we can do it in the freight elevator, because they had this ginormous freight elevator. Once been a car room, she went, Oh, okay. So we just thought up something to go in the freight elevator. So a lot of the times it was kind of crazy things like that. That's great. Anything that stands out uh, besides that? Like, was there anything that was a. Um, did you get a, what was it, what was it, was it received well by the public and by the community and yeah you, no they were yeah. and it was interesting though they were very well received by the shows were um, mostly half French half English mm-hmm. we were sort of influenced I guess by the Lepage so most of them were within the French community mm-hmm. and Stacy Christodoulou still like her reputation is even though she's an English theater director she has a big reputation within the French milieu and those th- um, shows were they were like Espasco, uh, I'm sorry, Espace Libre. Um, they were at the smaller French theater at, at um, the Salfred Berry, which is, again, a smaller space that experimental theater is in. We did one show that I truly, when I got out of theater school, I really wanted to sort of try doing things that were what we were told not to do. Right. So <laughs> I did one show that was completely and utterly white. We were at Espace Libre, and I went in and I said, oh, is it okay if I just make the whole space white? Because theater, a neutral space is black. Mm-hmm. Art gallery, a neutral space is white. Mm-hmm. So I, I just rented an industrial spray machine and sprayed the entire theater white. And I made um, the tables for the props. I had them light tables, so they looked like your standard backstage light tables but they were illuminated light tables and so that's what the set was with the just the all the labeled props on the set and then the labeled costumes on the set and yeah so we and then I did another set where and that's the one where, how I first met Peter Hinton I did another set that was all mirrors like because I just wanted and so that I like I went to a friend that um uh, a lighting designer and I said oh I really want to do this show that's all mirrors can we can we do it uh, would you be willing to to design it with me and so yeah so we did and I made it was a kind of a uh, a raw uh, loft space it had all these columns in it so what I did was I made I just built other columns that were all mirror so you went in and it looked like it was part of the architecture but then as the show went it all started to move yeah it was, it was all great that's terrific and and uh and you told me earlier that Peter Hinton saw that show and went 
Yeah, Peter, I got home. It was the best answering machine message I ever had. I came home and there was this person saying, I just saw this show and it it was the most amazing, beautiful show I ever saw. And can I meet you? So I went and met him and we had this huge conversation. And at the end he said, oh, uh, I have, I've written a play and I'd love it if you would design it. And I, because I, of doing experimental theater, most of the shows I did were new plays. And, you know, they were like little tiny bits. So I imagined something that was going to be a two, three-hander, maybe four-hander, and it was The Swan. And at that point, it ended up being a trilogy, but at that point it was five plays, each 300 pages. Oh, my God. And how many characters? Oh, that a final, when it actually was produced, there were 25 actors. I can't remember. And it, it goes over, it's goes over a hundred years, right? The time period keeps changing too. And they did it at, uh, at Stratford eventually. That's right. It went through 10 years of workshops. Oh my God. And, uh, yeah. And it was kind of funny because Peter and I, we would talk, like we did, uh, I guess there were three major workshops, one at NTS, one at Ryerson and one at, at Stratford. And that was sort of the preliminary one before they actually decided to put it on. Yeah. And so it slowly got smaller and smaller. And I think even at the very first one, it had, at the first big workshop, it was three plays. And so as these w- workshops would go on, Peter and I would talk. And it was Carolyn Smith as well. So it was Carolyn Smith, Peter, and I would talk about it. And it was very interesting because it was set in the 19th century. So we totally imagined it being in a proscenium theater, mm-hmm. like an old proscenium theater with all these flies. And we just talked about it. And like, so then after 10 years, Peter phones me and goes, oh my God, we've been accepted. We've been accepted. Stratford wants to produce it, but it's on their thrust. Right. It's in the studio. <laughs> that, that As in change. every idea we've thought of is now out the window. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to reimagine the entire show after 10 years. That's crazy. Um, that's incredible. And what was your what was your approach then? What, what was what was your solution? Like, how did you have to rejig your? Thinking we definitely and- had to refigure our thinking. And not only did that, it's the studio theater, which actually has no kind of access yeah. to the ceiling, so there's nothing could fly in mm-hmm. at all. We just wow, we just totally rethought it, you know, basically. And and I suppose on a certain level, like I'd been collecting images for years, and so we still used the same metaphors for what we were doing. Like his, um, the first one was all, it's Venus comes to Earth and she's searching for her son. And my idea was that every setting, and I I think maybe there were 20 settings in the show, should be a manifestation of the Temple of Venus. Whether the audience saw that or not, but that for me was how I linked them all together. So although all all our ideas for how the ceiling of the theater crashes in was no longer possible, the, the basic idea of it being a metaphor of the of the Temple of Venus did work. So we just kept it. And there were some things that we did, like at the back of that theater, I built two huge doors. So when those doors opened, I had the inside. So it became like a little tiny proscenium theater at the back. So there were parts of it that did get incorporated, but definitely there were, there were big things that we just had to, to completely lose. And and did you um, was there a through line? There must have been a through line in design for for the for the. It was a trilogy, right? In the end, yeah. And was the but the, was it the same? How did the set progress between each piece, um, or did it? Um, it did progress between each one. Um, the third one, 
was all illustrations, um, black and white illustrations, like from a book. The the one that was the Temple of Venus, the way I had um, visually created it was, it was all done with as if it was decoupage, so it was like paper cutouts. So in the very end, you realize that it's actually a book that Victoria has written. So in the end, it all falls into becoming this huge paper thing. So yeah, so even though and each one was very different, they they in the end, they all end up being a single element, if you will. Uh, and so you meet Peter Hinton, and, and, and now the, the Swan was produced in what, 2000 and something, wasn't it? 2002 to four. Yeah. Two, three, and four. Okay. And what, was it one one production every year? So, okay. So it wasn't all in one cycle. No. Have they, have, did they have plans to do it all in one cycle? It seems like kind of a giant I, undertaking. I, Peter would love it if somebody did it again, but, but they haven't. And it's a bit like the Donnellys, which I was talking about when in my childhood. I love the Donnellys. It's a trilogy as well. And they produced that at one point as a, uh, uh, all together in a single day, mm-hmm. but no, nobody has done it, but it would be wonderful if yeah. they did. The, uh, the, and this is James Rainey's Donnelly's, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Cause there's like, t- with like 12 different Donnelly's plays. Yeah, no, we, that was, I meant the James Rainey yeah. once. We, uh, I, I have Sula Page, who I spoke with, uh, last year, mm-hmm. uh, worked on a different Donnelly's, um, worked on the, the, the Ted Johns Donnelly's, okay. I think. Um, and when we went, uh, when I started, uh, to look back at the research after we had that discussion, uh, the Donnelly seemed like this. We were obsessed by the Donnellys oh, in the yeah, 1970s. No, it's true, right? it was, yes. uh, there's a musical, and there's uh, Peter Cauley's plays, and then there's the, the Ted Johns, and then the Collectives, and and uh, and then James Rainey. Um, it, but it, in a way, it makes sense because in the 70s <clears throat> in Ireland, the IRA, like it was <clears throat> terrible things were happening, yeah. and that's that story brought to Canada in a way. Like in a way, it had a political relevance that it the, that is not as strong now. Yeah, it's very true. It's very true. Great. So you meet Peter Hinton now. In the 10 years that you guys were. Uh, working on The Swan, you were collaborating on other works as well. Did he have you in to do work uh, after you guys met, or was it other, was that just I'm the, trying to think. No, I did do some shows with him. I did a show called Girls, Girls, Girls at the FTA. I did a show called, there's a playwright called Greg MacArthur, a playwright I really like a lot. Mm-hmm. did a number of shows of his with Peter, another one called Snowman. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know I have done other shows. I've done a lot of shows with Peter, so I'd have to look. <laughs> it's okay. I've got them here. Um, uh, we don't have to go through all the shows. Yeah, no, Peter. I've done a lot of That's shows important. with Peter. It's an important connection, though. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and he's doing Alice in Wonderland here, isn't yeah. he, with you? Yeah. yeah. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, any other big... Um, uh, uh, Crystal, Stacey, with Stacy, the other big show that I did with her that I really like, mm-hmm. that was wonderful, um, was a show called uh, Human Collision Atomic Reaction. Mm-hmm. And it was based on uh, Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time. Mm-hmm. It was just a collaborative piece. It was a great show. It was a very smart show. It's still one of my favorite designs. And um, when she, it was commissioned by the FTA. They have a kind of a new works thing festival. And so it was part of the FTA. It was very successful as part of the FTA. It got remounted later on. A theater picked it up in Montreal. And then it also went down to uh, an experimental theater in New York called, my God, it was part of something called the Soho 
Festival, and the theater's called the Ohio Theater. So it went down to uh, to New York as well. So it had a long life, that show, but it was a very, very nice little show. And what she wanted it to end with a plane crash. And we started, so she, that was what she first asked me was, how do you make a show, how do you make a plane crash? So I started reading about plane crashes and I, I guess I was reading about the uh, Lockerbie plane crash off of Nova Scotia. And they were talking about when people went to see it, they got there to try and help. And all there was, was clothes floating on the sea. And so I decided that that's the image that I would start with. So I, I ended, it was, again, we were a small theater company without much money. I went and bought from Value Village, I think it was, half a ton of clothes. I bought them bulk. And so we we ended up building this whole show around all these old clothes. And it was really a great show. It was a very, very beautiful show. And, yeah, I think it was one of my most successful designs. So that actually, APASC picked that show up that went to the Prague of 2013 I think the design for that show and that was definitely a show that got me a lot of attention and a lot of success I actually I won a, a Mecca Montreal Theatre Award for that one as well That's great. Uh, lovely now um, the Swan was the first time you, that you were working at Stratford had you been working a lot outside of Montreal before then? No, not at all. That's the first time I, I came back. And how did you find that experience going to Stratford? I mean, you're in the studio, so it is a specific... Yeah, it's a specific, and, and it's not got the budgets of the bigger shows. Yeah. But nevertheless, to be honest, I I was I found the prop shop. It was like being in Santa's workshop. Sure. <laughs> you know, after spending so long doing these shows where it was like... I guess I had been doing these experimental shows for so long. What would happen is I would build what I could build. And I had specific people, like I would hire everybody. Mm-hmm. So I would hire the T, it's kind of weird, but I would hire the person who would TD it. And, you know, and I would hire different painters for different things because I had so little money. So it's like, oh, so-and-so is very good at abstract painting. So-and-so is very good at, at, at sharp, you know, ge- geographic things. So I would hire different people to do little diff- bits of things. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of amazing going there. And you could have anything you dreamed up. And, you know, there was somebody whose specialty was doing soft props and upholstery and somebody who does leather and somebody who does fake food and somebody. It was really kind of wild. So that was totally amazing. I I was I really loved that. I'd... Was the show running in rep or was it? Uh, this is the studio theater had only just yeah, been no, it a was, couple seasons. It was in right? rep. Yeah. Yeah, it was in rep because and, it was I remember there was a Medea at the same time. Yeah. And how did you feel that you fit into the machine down there? Like, did it feel like that was a big machine, or did it, it definitely felt like a big machine? Yeah. And there was parts of it that I found hard. Um, yeah, I still, I still do find it hard being part of a big machine. And I think part of it is, yeah, I, I kind of done my little solo thing, and I'm used to being solo. But at the same time, I can kind of float around in the machine. So, so yeah, I, I definitely find it harder. I think I prefer to be independent. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and how uh, how do you find the t- the timeline difference? Because I imagine in experimental and collaborative work, you're able to make changes but, on the fly and develop work. Yeah, in Yeah, but you know what's really kind of interesting is because most of the shows I was doing with the other theater were um, technically they were French shows, so we were doing them with UDA and UDA rehearses in a completely different way from Pact. Oh, okay. So actors are not. With UDA, actors are not paid for their rehearsal time. They're only paid for performances. So what tends to happen is that um, shows are rehearsed for very long periods of time. 
So it's over months, right? So as a designer, it gives you way more time to think about and work things. So, um, yeah, I guess not so much. I mean, still in a rep theater, there's a fair amount of time. Like it's longer than doing uh, uh, one of the regionals. But still, the time factor to me was like you just – people don't work with the things as much as I was used to, you know, People don't work with costumes for as long a time. People don't work with, with props for as long a time. There's enough as much response time. I think I found that part really hard. Mm-hmm. That that really took me aback. And, you know, it's also funny sometimes when you're used to doing something yourself and somebody else is doing it. And it's like, oh, well, that's not how I would have done it. But you, you have to give the, the leeway for that. Hi there, I'm interrupting briefly to thank those of you who have chosen to support the Tuttle Block on Patreon.com. Now, I really enjoy doing the show, and, I, and I'm not going to stop it while I have the time, but it does cost a bit to do the show between uh, equipment and web hosting, not to mention extra mic rentals to ensure that special events like the Bellows sound as best as I can make them. So I'm asking that you help out to cover these costs and help me to continue to capture the story of Canadian theatre design. Go to Patreon.com slash the Tuttle Block Podcast and donate a couple bucks an episode. It really helps. Uh, tell me, we also spoke earlier about just uh, getting to more about your process. You, um, you said that you didn't get you you, you don't uh, have any experience or uh, actually building sets and doing that kind of technical carpentry stuff. So how um, how do you find communicating your ideas and working with a TD uh, and uh, and describe that process and 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 how you discovered that you could work that way? Oh um, well, definitely when I first started, I was. I, I spent a long time being very cramped, I guess, by the fact that I didn't know how to build, but I did know how to build costumes. So, you know, I could say to, to a cutter, oh, I want this kind of a sleeve and this kind of a seam, and this is, you know, this is how I want it to be cut as opposed to being like this. Whereas with sets, I don't have that ability. And I had I had a very hard time um, with that. And when I went to to Stratford, it was interesting because I was it was on the it was actually the the first Swan that I was doing. I had this unit, and I was trying to figure out whether it was uh, the base was big enough to support the height, and it had a trap door thing, and I couldn't figure out how to do the mechanism. And um, the Alyssa Horsecraft, the TD for my show, said to me, "Oh, you know, you know, we don't care how you." You know, we don't need to know how you think it should be built. We want to know, um, we want to know, we want your ideas. That's what we're paying you for. And that made a huge difference to me because until then I always worried about not having the answers. Like I wanted to have the answer, the solution to the problem that was posed. And um, after that, I was like, uh, I'd had all these ideas in my head. But I didn't know how to express them all. And I realized that the most important thing is just to say them. Mm-hmm. And somebody else can tell you, yes, that's a possible or no, that's not possible. And and it made the whole, it kind of eased it up. And it made it definitely made a huge difference to my creative process. And it made it a lot easier for me. And I realized that a lot of the times, like, I may not know what the material should be, but I do know that it has to be light and I want it to be black and shiny, mm-hmm. something like that. And so it, it, 
yeah, it just made it a lot easier. I actually find I love talking to TDs and carpenters and figuring everything out. And I don't try and pretend I know anything because I don't. And on a certain level, I think they like that because it gives them a lot of power in the process and a lot of creativity. But yeah, so... That's interesting. We had a, uh, a discussion on the bellows, which uh, I had described earlier, uh, was a... Uh, uh, is a sort of a forum to discuss topics in, in technical theater uh, and backstage and in, in theater in general and small theater. And one of the one of the things we talked about was how, why you need a production manager. And it seems like um, in in a in a system where uh, designers are, for instance, at uh, Ryerson or at uh, York uh, or any of the uh, Conserv- not even, well, most of the some of the conservatory programs, but you're also you're given that kind of background, um, uh, and it's important to know you know how things go together, uh, and so people rely are, are able to rely upon themselves, right. uh, or or even producers go well you know we'll hire a carpenter obviously to build it, but you know when we hire designer X they'll be able to tell them exactly what they want, um, and it sort of strikes home the necessity of having a TD in this case, yeah. right? Oh, and, absolutely. And the f- more the freedom it gives you. Uh, so you're not always burdened by, can this work? Do I have to, how do, how does it work? And, and, and getting caught in those details, right? Yeah. But definitely like I, 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 I have to admit, like I'm not the kind of designer that if a carpenter doesn't know how to, to build it, mm-hmm. then I'm in trouble, right. you know? And I definitely, at a big theater like this, of course, they're going to have that know-how. But definitely when I work in a smaller theater where I'm, you know, it's a smaller theater, I have to make sure that the carpenter I have has the skill set that I need. And I have actually, um, there's a TD I work with a lot in Montreal named Steve Schoen, and I have actually, like, I'll pay him to come in for a day and go, okay, I'm worried about this before, you know, because I don't want, if it's, a, if I'm going to a theater where I've never been before and I don't have the answer for whether this will work or if this can happen, I'll get him to look at it and say, okay, give me your two cents. Like, you know, can I go ahead with this or should I rethink this, you know? And how about, uh, just before we leave your, uh, your training and your uh, earlier career, uh, any kind of mentors or people that you really felt helped you shape your aesthetic uh, or design or, um, or process even? Um, well, I think uh, I said that my parents were visual artists. Mm-hmm. They were very close friends with a, a visual artist named Joyce Wheeland. Mm-hmm. She had a very big effect, I think, on, on my on my aesthetic and how I see things as an artist. She worked a lot with textiles and she had a great uh, uh, respect for for textile work. And I think that that affected how I look at things. And she looked at anything could possibly be art. And I think that that affected a lot how I view things. She also affected uh, like just my actual philosophy about things. She told me this story when I was like, I guess it was maybe 18. She said that when she'd split with her husband, she had gone into therapy and she would go into therapy and she'd rant and rave about men and how they, she couldn't do this and she couldn't do that. And at that point, OCA didn't have women professors. They only had men and, you know, she'd never been hired by them and she found that offensive. And and so she was ranting to her therapist and she was saying to her therapist said, I'm tired of hearing you rant, you know, you should do something about it. She said, well, what? And, And her therapist said, well, you know, Pierre Teberge, who was the head of the National Gallery in Ottawa at the time, she says, why don't you just phone him and ask him to do a one-woman show? Mm-hmm. 
And she said, well, you can't do that. That's not how things work. And her therapist said to her, okay, for, for next week when you come back, I want you to phone Père Théberge and ask him for a show. And uh, you tell me what he says. So Trace phoned him, and he gave her a show. And she was the first woman in Canada to have a one-woman retrospective at the National Gallery. I know. And she said to me, it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have phoned him. And she said, you know, I did that. I was, I think she was in her 40s at that point. And she said, you know, I'm saying it to you now because you're 18. And I think about what could have happened in my career. And I think that that for sure, like I've always, if I want something, I'll phone for it and ask for it because the worst that can happen is that somebody will say no. And, you know, when I first started, you know, definitely there were more men doing sets than women. And there was a point where I, I sort of said, I would say, no, I won't do costumes. I have to do both together. Yeah. I, I want you to hire me for both. Yeah. And some people said no and some people said yes. Yeah. But I think that that, like Joyce's, that, that speech of Joyce's had a big effect on, on how I was doing things and what I was doing. And the other big mentor that I had is Anne Pritchard, mm-hmm. who's a production designer. Mm-hmm. And uh, she also was friends with my parents, so I've known her from since childhood. And um, uh, when I first graduated from theater school, I also did some film work, and I worked for Anne. And she, like Barbeau, is very exacting, very precise, very critical. And I think she's had a big effect on my on how I look at things and how I see things. And she's an amazing person. She consumes everything. She, you know, at this point, she's probably pretty close to 80. She's production designer for Xavier Dolan's next movie. You know, I can talk to her about what's happening in music, art, everything. She sees it all, and she'll get grumpy because she'll say, oh, um, they tell me that I'm too old, so I don't know what's happening. And she said, but that's my job, yeah. is to know what's happening. Yeah. And and so she's a great person, too. She's a wonderful person. That's lovely. We've had... Uh, I've been very careful... Um, and I haven't spoken about this on the podcast before, but I've been very careful to make sure that there is, uh, we hear from a variety of voices, uh, men and women mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of diversity, unfortunately, other diversity in, the, in design in Canada. Uh, the, I mean, the, the fact that I haven't had any Quebec designers on is a bit of a yeah. glaring thing, but it, I mean, this has to do with my lack of, you know, yeah. um, uh, connection to that community. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, one thing that, we've been talking about a lot is um, well first of all it's well known that costume designers are probably have uh, probably the worst compensated yeah. uh, designers and they also have mostly because they have the most the longest contract like they have to be present for a lot of the build and the buying and everything else um, but even in wardrobe uh, I've been wanting to have a discussion about the wage disparity right. uh, in wardrobe compared to stagehands because they're in many cases they're uh, part of the same union if they're yep. unionized and uh, and there's still a huge wage disparity and I and it has to be like the only answer is sexism yeah right and you ask somebody you ask a production manager a TD you're like why don't you pay your 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 seamstresses and your and your head of wardrobe the same as you pay your you know sound guys and, and mm-hmm. the stagehands oh well the theater will go broke you're yes. Like, well, yes. It's exactly. That's it's always it's the reply always you get. Yeah, and you're like, well, yeah. that's not the right answer. No, right? it's really not the right answer <laughs> at all, at all. And it's interesting because it's a conversation that's been going on forever. I can remember that conversation when I was house managing at Tarragon yeah. in 1981. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I I uh, I hope that we have a uh, we can have a frank discussion about it 
later on. Like, I want to get a panel together of people yeah. from all sides to have a discussion because, in an industry that prides itself on being inclusive or being at the forefront or very yeah. liberal, right? You all of a sudden you have these entrenched, entrenched sexism and entrenched yeah, racism and you know white absolutely. privilege and all that other stuff. It's uh, it's really ironic, and and it's very uncomfortable to point that out to people. Oh yeah, people don't like to have it pointed no, out at no, all, at all. No, they really don't. So, anyways, that's a great discussion. Now, let's talk about um, let's talk about your process first. So, you've had a you know more or less traditional theater training. Um, how do you approach your work dramaturgically? You've done a lot of collaborative stuff. Have you been involved right from the beginning on those works? Yeah, when I do the collaborative stuff, I usually am involved right from the beginning. And yeah, like when I was working a lot with Stacy and Joe, we would be discussing it. Um, in the theoretical, like before we had a script. And and often we would be saying things like, like for instance, the show I was talking about with all the clothes. We bought that half ton of clothes and we arrived the first day of rehearsal with a huge room full of clothes, like four feet of clothes all over the floor. And yeah, and then they did two days of rehearsal and Stacy was like, I can't think, there's always clothes. And I was like, that's fine. We filled the room with them and bit by bit, they, they came out and became part of So the show got built with that. Right. But when I was, like, honestly, when I was doing those fringe shows and we had no money, we literally trolled alleyways for cool things to find that we could incorporate into a set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it totally. And we would get, like, we did, I did one show with this friend Joe and we found a huge bin of uh, old eight-track tape. Mm-hmm. And so we were trying to figure out the show and it was, Joe said, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we made it like it was rain? And that's what the thing was. And we ended up, we made a a curtain of eight track tape, but it was on pulleys. So it pulled forward and there were just strands all through and then it pulled back. Right. And I can't, I remember the only thing that we actually paid money for was the tape (laughs) (laughs) that held it together. That's great. And how about a scripted work? How do you approach the script? And uh, um, Well, you know, I like to have to know I'm doing a show as much in advance as possible because <coughs> what I'll do is I'll just read the script and then I'll just I don't know, look at 19th century art. I think having an art history degree is definitely very useful because I immediately know I'll just go out and look at a whole pile of books from the period and, and I'm not really necessarily looking for anything in particular or specific. Like I'm not like, oh, I need to know 19th century furniture or I need to know interiors. I'm just looking at painting or, you know, listening to music, all that kind of thing. So I usually, like I'd really love to have a period of like, just I'm working on other shows and what I do in my free time is I'm looking at something that's for a show six months down the line that I'm going to look at. Once I start doing my set, I must admit, like, I realized being here, which is funny, I realized being here that a lot of the times the model is built very late Mm -hmm. in the game Mm -hmm. and I actually don't work like that at all. I start with my model right away Mm -hmm. and I usually start with my model being... I start with my model just being paper, like... Mm -hmm regular eight and a half by 11 white paper and I'm cutting it and it gets messy. It's like this messy paper thing. And then when I think I've got an idea of, okay, this is what I think it's going to be. Then I go into, I have a huge collection of brown paper, like from the backs of, and I make it in a messy brown paper thing. Mm -hmm. And I realize I actually go through probably about four or five messy things Mm -hmm. before I get to the model. But I also, and I, I got that from Michael Egan. If I work between, I usually have my plan on a drafting table, my section on a drafting table, and my model, and I'm kind of going between the three working. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, and I realized that I was kind of shocked when I realized, oh, because I was like, how can you build a model at the end? Mm-hmm. But yeah, so. Yeah. Um, and how about building your own model? I mean, here they, they build them. You have assistants that do a lot of the model work. Yeah, I built mine in Montreal, oh. so I, I, I did it beforehand. And I have an assistant in Montreal that I work with, but they don't necessarily, like I do a fair amount of my model building. Great. So let's, uh, let's talk about Alice in Wonderland. Alice, we've been doing workshops for two years who who's the did Peter write it? Did the Peter's adaptation? written it? Yeah, and it's a musical, mm-hmm. so it's uh, music by Alan Cole. Oh, great! Excellent. And it has a huge video component. Mm-hmm. So Ben and Beth have been a big part of the design, and then Bill Schmuck is doing the costumes. So it's it's a uh, and Denise from One Yellow Rabbits. Denise Roberts is choreography. So yeah, it's a big team of people. That's terrific. And what's the what's the what was the general approach? Was it just a strict adaptation, or is Peter Peter would say it's an adaptation, but it's put. There's a lot of Peter in there. There always is, and um, yeah, we've decided to completely keep it in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. and uh, we've used a lot of photography, things with photography. I did my father when I say he was an artist, he was a photographer. I love photography. So there's yeah, we use like camera obscuras, rooms being upside down, things like that. And, um, yeah, we've been doing it for two years, as I said. So we've got discussed a bit. We had a list of all the difficult things to do because there's a lot of of people growing, shrinking, um, getting smaller, uh, drowning in a pool of tears. So we've talked a very great deal about how to do it all. In the workshops, we actually had a lot of time on stage with uh, video component, with actors, uh, with Foy, so that we could try things out and see how we could do, you know, falling down a rabbit hole. And um, yeah, it's been it's been a, a very big and long and elaborate process. Um, Peter often says that he likes to work with me because I have a good sense of scale. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure that's why he wanted to do Alice yes. with me because Alice is all about scale. So yeah, so I was kind. Of, it's a. I have a huge file on my desktop that's called Alice Rejects mm-hmm. because you know it's like okay, should something be really tiny or should it be ginormously big? Like when Alice shrinks, does that mean that she actually gets smaller? Like you know, because a lot of it becomes relative. Like what happens to what? So yeah, but it's been totally fun to do, and it's a crazy adventure. Crazy, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I imagine this was. Uh commissioned by Shaw or by the Shaw Festival or was this something he's been working on that he pitched? I don't know which one of the two. Okay. I think it's something he pitched, yeah. but I might be wrong. Okay. I don't actually know which which came first. I'll try and find out and put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, and and uh, my next question. The other thing I did, just mm-hmm. because I said that Peter first phoned me because I did the show with mirrors that he loved. Mm-hmm. So one of the big things I really wanted to do was make the floor be completely mirror, which it is, oh, wow. so that everything is reflective. That's crazy. As a lighting designer, that is a nightmare. Although, so poor Kevin, who just yes. <laughs> left the room, would have plenty to say about it. I kept worrying, like, oh, my God. You could see, like, everybody's eyebrows were like, oh, my God. And But it's lit beautifully. Uh, I don't know how terribly hard it uh, time kevin had on it but it's very beautifully done uh how do you uh, did you plan to deal with spill like in the like how did you deal with masking to sort of make sure that light bouncing off the stage wasn't lighting up 
This is just not well, just regular was, masking, just regular velours up there. Uh, um, I'm not completely sure what they've done up there. Sure. You know, if it, uh, it's Germans on the side, mm-hmm. and yeah, a lot of the question was, what's going to happen with the light? We've just kind of dealt with it as we go but it's pretty crazy and yeah there's a big trap it's interesting to see what happens there's a big trap in the floor that opens so of course the the light from that is just wild when it opens and closes and there's also a lot of mirrors on the costumes as well so but mirrors are great like it's a a wonderful uh uh metaphor for Alice in Wonderland and I think and from the it's interesting from the balcony it's a it's a beautiful show as well so yeah so definitely there's been a lot like as if there wasn't enough to 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 deal with to start with (laughs) exactly very often especially in the in the large process houses you 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 set uh, from a land design point of view you, you cue the whole show whole show from the orchestra and then you know like before the first preview, but probably by the second dress or something, you go, I'm going to go, let's see what it looks like upstairs in the balcony. <laughs> and, yeah, I know, exactly. And then all of a sudden you start turning stuff down because the floor is all, is all completely different. But uh, I imagine here you have to, you probably have to pay attention to that right from the beginning. Oh, yeah, no. No, because there's uh, really a lot, and, and simple things would set huge shadows, right, right, right that right. you wouldn't expect to. So, yeah. And how do you find working with video uh designers as a oh this is it was my first time that i've worked with video designers so it was interesting like at first there was really this kind of like oh what's mine what's yours but i think that as we went along like part of it is we want it to be a single show but as it's gone along it's it's become very much a a work of complicité which is very interesting so i've been drawing a lot of drawings that they've been using in their video Things. And originally, like I had done a few drawings, but then it got to like, oh, yo, can you draw this? Can you draw that? So, uh, yeah, I think it's very much work together. And, you know, sometimes um, how something happens is with a set piece, like a table growing is a telescoping table. But other times it's a backdrop, uh, a projection that gets smaller. So and a lot of the times we go back and forth. So it's definitely been a work of a lot of back and forth. And how do you find? I know that the the scale, uh, you can I mean you you can change the scale on the set and the video. But how do you find working with an actor that doesn't change scale? Like how how do you how do you how much do you have to worry about integrating these these living beings? Oh well, I think world, we, well right? we had to do that from yeah. the beginning because otherwise it doesn't work. And you know sometimes like. For instance, when it's the Mad Hatter scene, I have Alice in a chair, and it's an adult playing. Like, that was another part of the scale, is we have an adult being a child, but we want her to look like a child. So how do you get that? So, yeah, so when we did the Mad Hatter, she's sitting in that armchair. It was like, how big is that armchair that's the right size? And, you know, I had, like, four different models of it, like... This so that it's big enough that she looks like she's a kid in it, but it's not so big that the other people in the scene that it pulls like often it's a very fine line between what's the right amount big. The same like um, there's a house that she climbs into at one point, and it's like how big can it be so that she can climb into it easily? But you know, it's like it has to be. Uh, big enough for her to go in, but small enough for her to easily climb in. And so there was a lot of kind of finessing like that. And yeah, and sometimes what we've done, yeah, it's hard, you know, works and sometimes less so. But yeah, there was always this kind of, how do I make 
other act sometimes we've we've done things so that other actors appear much bigger like the scale of the costume sometimes it's the scaling of the costumes mm-hmm. but but it's totally it's a fun thing to play with like in the mad hatter scene we have teeny tiny teacups and we have great big teacups and you know so it's it's fun to play with this like it's a lot there's a lot of fun to be had with it i imagine most things are built all the prop stuff. Oh, yeah. Everything's built, I think eh? for the prop shop, this one has been very hard for them because everything has had to be built. And it's interesting, the few things that I didn't have built, I look at them now and go, oh, I wish I'd built them. Right, sure. <laughs> right? Because it makes a very big difference. Like if a chair is just slightly too big yeah. as opposed to a normal chair, it has a very different feeling. And if you can go with a chair that's slightly too big next to one that's slightly too small, mm-hmm. you can get a lot of mileage from things like that. But yes, it's, it's a very, it's a huge build show for the props department. Imagine. Uh, when were your pre- prelims due? Like last September or something? Were they? Uh, last September and I was late. Oh. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> it's a, a huge show. Yeah. That's a thing that happens though. Right? Yeah. Um, and how did you, uh, how are you able to react to, because I imagine, the rehearsal hall, when the actors come into a show like this where everything is, uh, when you have, you're trying to exert so much control over the scale and you have to make those decisions so early, uh, how do you work with the actor to sort of find, uh, you know, how they integrate with the stuff, with the decisions you made six months ago? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I'm not really doing that. Like, that's what I found odd in this process because it's Peter who's doing that as the director. Like, Peter's the link. And it's interesting because I'm not doing costumes, I'm not working with the, with the actors, right? So I don't, like, I go, I, I'm at rehearsals, but I don't have that kind of link. And, yes, it has been decided beforehand, which is it's a very, a very odd situation. A lot of the stuff, I mean, because we did these, um, these, uh, workshops beforehand um the the actress from alice we had from the get-go so she's she was like on board and you know the really big major decisions we made before we went into into production on this like the falling down the hole the really the really huge ones the pool of tears um so a lot of it was all decided beforehand and yeah, coming in, I had great qualms, like, oh my God, what are the impositions that I have put on the actors, on the lighting designer, There's all kinds of stuff that it's given, but it is what it is, and we've worked with it from there. Uh, there's no roof, is there? It seems like the only thing you haven't done <laughs> is put a roof over no, the other No, there's thing. no roof. Okay. Phew. Thank God. Yep. Uh, that's great. Uh, is this something, this must be a brand a new... Like, did you have to invent, uh, reinvent the way you work uh, when you came into this process? Or is this something that you were expecting? Was there any unexpected surprises? And No, no, I think it was, there wasn't any unexpected surprises, I yeah. would say. I guess surprises are, by definition, unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> As no. opposed to expected surprises. But So, okay. Uh, uh, and let's, anything else you want to talk about with Alice? No, I don't no. think so. Uh, how does it? How does your process for Alice compare to Pygmalion? Because Pygmalion was something that didn't have any development prior. You were just you're, yeah. You're we just went script, straight right? into it, and, and Pygmalion was much more straightforward, I think, and much more like a regular show because of that. Alice was a huge long process, and you know the amount of discarded ideas for. But I haven't gone back and went, oh, you know, really, that one was the right idea and we chose the wrong one. I haven't felt like that about anything at all. 
But um, but yeah, Pygmalion was a much more simpler process. But interestingly, one of the materials that, and it was Mark the TD here who proposed it to me, the set for Alice uh, for uh, Pygmalion is built out of this material called alu panel, mm-hmm. which is really great, which I had not used before. And that's what I had, it's when I was looking through it and I realized there was a mirrored version. That's when, uh, that's where I went. That's how I got the Alice floor. Right. What's the nature of the material? Is it uh, like a wood It's an aluminum oh. and in the mid, and it's got a, some foam in the middle. Oh, okay. And it's actually very cool because you can cut the back and bend it oh. so it can make perfect corners. Great. Yeah, so it's very beautiful looking. That's yeah. Awesome. yeah. Um, uh, is it sourced in Canada or did they have to ship it in from someplace else? I Do you don't know? actually know. Okay, what and what's it called again? Alu panel. Alu panel. Yeah, great. Okay, but it's I'll it's a building a material and it can be used for exteriors as well as interiors. So it's a super heavy duty material. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about training. Um, you mean you you have gone back and now you're um, ushering students through their projects at and you have been doing that for a number of years at mm-hmm. National Theatre School. Uh, what has that experience been like to sort of return and become a mentor um, to the you know to the students? in the same position you were in 10 years well, ago. I, I really enjoy ago. it. And I have to admit, um, I get a, a, a lot from the process. Mm-hmm. And, and I like to think I give the students a lot. Mm-hmm. I find it very uh, rejuvenating to be with them. I find their energy and the openness with which they look at things and the awe with which they look at things all great. I love it. I, I find I feed on it unbelievably. Um, I really like going through the process with them. I really see myself when I'm like, I'm their coach. So I, I imagine myself as being somebody next to somebody riding a bicycle for the first time. And I'm, I don't want them to crash. I want them to stay on course, but I'm really just running along beside them, making sure that that it all happens because I've been doing it for a while now. I have a pretty good idea of when they'll need me and when they don't. And I usually do it while I'm designing. And I like that because when I'm in the design process, I'm just in my studio and it's a very solitary part of my, my, my process. So I enjoy being able to get out and go and see people and have lots of action. And, um, because it's just be designing, it's also a great time because I feel very, very uh, accessible. Like they can phone me anytime, you know, like if they phone me at 11 o'clock, like, oh, my God, I haven't finished my plan. What do I do? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm there. Like that doesn't I, – I like that. Like, you know, it's kind of yeah. – it, it, it adds an unknown quotient to my, to my daily uh, regime. So I really enjoy it. Uh, great. And you didn't have this kind of opportunity when you were in... Uh, oh, when I was at the theater school, they did not have coaching. Yeah. And I really think it's a valuable thing. When I was there, like, we just did what we did, and there was nobody overseeing or, or guiding it. As I said, Barbeau would come at the end, and he would give his critique, and then he would tell you where you'd done all your terrible mistakes. Right. But I remember I, I, I built this very elaborate, tailored outfit. It was very beautiful, but it was a huge amount of my budget on a costume that was on stage for 30 seconds. And I was I was completely devastated when I realized what I'd done. And it was a completely ridiculous mistake. Yeah. Of course, I never did it again. Sure. You, you carefully think about where you're going to get the bang for your bucks. Yeah. But, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a very good thing for, for students to do it. But I also try when I mentor students um, 
to get them to think about what they're going to do next. Because I think a big part of being a freelancer is not only being in the moment, but being planning for your next show so that you don't end up with lulls and gaps. So I, I'm also like saying, okay, what are you going to do when you finish theater school? Have you lined up? Have you thought about this mentorship? Have you sent, have you, you should be sending out your CVs now. I know you're just designing a show, but you've got to be thinking about that. So I really try and, and get them to, 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 get moving on what what's going to be happening when school clo- ends because I think it's very easy to have school end and then you're just there and what do you do next yeah. you're just out in the world yeah it's a it's a interesting transition or <laughs> it's a difficult, a difficult transition, transition. Yeah. and it's terrible to see people get that lost that shouldn't you know I had one student who, you know, she had a big debt and you could see when we gave the graduation she was just like she didn't know like when we asked her, what are you going to do? She said, oh, I'm going to get a job so I can pay off my debt. And I'm like, oh, this yeah. does not sound good. And, you know, she's she's now assisting at, 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 at Stratford. And it's good, you know, like it's good to see that that that, that step gets beyond. Because yeah. I think that's a big, hard gap to step over when you're. Do you think uh, one of the things I, I was talking to Lorenzo Savoini yesterday, and the um, one of the things we're talking about is this process of mentorship and apprenticeship that used to be very strong uh, in the '70s. It was kind of how you entered the business, and now uh, it's well. I think maybe the market is saturated. Back in the '70s and '80s, there was a, there was so much work, uh, and you basically you know walked into a theater and could get a job uh, because of the, because the industry was expanding and there was new companies and lots of new work being produced. And now uh, because it's matured a bit, and all those artists from the '70s and '80s are still working, yeah. right, as senior designers uh, in the community, uh, it seems like um, it's difficult to sort of. I mean, you have to either create your own work. Mm-hmm. find people that uh, are exciting to work with who are new. Uh, otherwise, it may be a bit difficult to sort of find your way in there. Uh, how do you feel like that system, do you think, like, it could, can it be changed or is it something that... Well, I think it's unbelievably important, apprenticeship. Yeah. And I, I really do. And, you know, th- thinking up an idea for a set and drawing drawings for it to be realized is really 50% of the process. The other half is actually seeing it. And, you know, a design can be one thing on paper and can be terribly realized. So having the experience of seeing different ways of realizing things and knowing how to go about it, unbelievably important. And I think apprenticeships are very important. And I really do think that theaters have, I think it should be part of of their mandate, mm-hmm. that they have apprenticeship positions and design positions. Yeah. And that they're also making sure that the people that are doing those jobs are having a fulfilling experience mm-hmm. doing it and, and getting a good perspective out of it. And I think it's very, very important. It seems like uh, theaters over the past 15 years, especially in the crisis of trying to fit into a different world of media, have been so focused on audience development yeah. that they seem to be, many of them seem to be ignoring uh, artistic development and yeah. developing future artists. I know that Soul Pepper uh, is working on that with their academy. And I know that uh, Stratford Stratford has an academy as well, but is it only for actors and directors? I think it's only for actors and directors. Yeah. Um, actually, that's not true. There is a part that's a design. I should, I should know this. My, okay. young, my okay. older son actually went to it okay. in design, mm-hmm. but it's smaller, the design section of it. Yeah. Uh, 
well, yeah, we think that we certainly have a challenge. Yeah, and I do programs. think that, that that there's more that we could that the professional theater could do. I definitely think there's a a, a void there that just shouldn't be there. And I think that there's, uh, as I said, I there's so so many of the schools are producing like you don't have that many time much time to be there for the realization for the production part. And I think it's unbelievably helpful. And I also think that as a designer, the more skills you have, the better. Like, you know, like the, you know, apprenticeships in the shoe department, the, in millinery, in breakdown, all that stuff, they're great. They're really great skills to have. All right. And then just one final question before we end. Um, advice for somebody who's considering going into theater. Uh, is it the right time? It, should they just follow their heart? And if they're, you know, if this is their vocation, they should go into it. Uh, do you feel like what? What would you tell somebody who's trying, who's on the fence, uh, or trying to decide whether they should go into career, uh, into theater as a profession? Hmm. Well, <laughs> I would say that I love it, and I found it to be very fulfilling. And I think that if that's what you want to do, then you should do it. But at the same time, I do think it's a prof- you don't make a lot of money at it, and I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. But if you want like I actually think it's very hard to have a good you know materialistic life mm-hmm. with it and if that's what you want then probably you shouldn't do that you should do like film is the one that has the big the big bucks attached to it and if it's money that you want then then I I would definitely say not theater but I I do think it's a wonderful profession I do think that for a formation the bigger and the wider it is the better off you are and I do think that a lot of schools, it's too focused on theater. And I think people should be well-read. They should read lots of novels. They should go to lots of concerts. They should um, go to galleries. They should see opera. They should see ballet. I, I definitely think that the more you have that to, 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 to pull from and, and the, that the better an artist you are. And I actually think that's the most important thing if you're going to be a designer. Yeah. Well, that's great. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. And that was designer EO Sharp joining me at the Shaw Festival in May of this year. Next time, another Benwells episode meeting a few characters of the Toronto production scene in an Ask Me Anything. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the CA and on Facebook.com forward slash the Title Block Podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the titleblock at gmail.com. Don't forget that we're also on Stitcher if you want to listen to us there. Now also, if you like this show, please support us on Patreon.com. Now feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you dream of English-Canadian theatre as edgy and as supported as Quebec drama is. Well, okay, that was a little too on the nose there. I'm Michael Cruz, and I will see you next time on the Title Block.